Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Hey, Tim, thanks for joining me here today. Dan, thanks for joining me here today. <laughs> this, is a, this is a joint feed episode of uh, the New Evangelicals and You Have Permission podcasts. Here we are. We, we met in person last year. We had already kind of met online, but we met in person last year at the Theology Beer Camp, and we will both be in person again this year at Theology Beer Camp coming up in October and that's kind of kind of why we're talking, but really we're talking because there's a, a really kind of interesting conversation in our larger sort of deconstruction-ish community over the last couple months, which I will set up in a second. But let's each say just like a couple words about our shows because this is going to go on both feeds. Some people don't know me. Some people don't know you. So for you have permission listeners, tell us a little bit about the New Evangelicals podcast. Yeah, yeah. My name is Tim. I'm the founder of the New Evangelicals uh, nonprofit organization. And the podcast really is uh, designed to help people explore the Christian tradition beyond their own heritage. We use the phrase the basement of uh, Christianity, usually referring to evangelicalism. So we kind of help people who are above ground for the first time uh, just be introduced to different ways of thinking about the Christian tradition and realizing that, hey, you can still stay Christian and flourish as a human even if you left where, where you're at. So our podcast is pretty wide, but we do a lot of that stuff mostly. Above ground. Some uh, unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, like living in a bunker <laughs> vibes here. Yes, that's very good. much. Yes, that's a good image. Okay, and, and I, I should say to you, have permission, listeners, your online community came up in a recent Q&A episode about finding community after being kicked out of a church or exiled mm. from a church. Um, so people could check out that episode uh, for some context there. And I recommended it so that you, you do have the podcast, but you also have kind of a larger organization and, and community and whatnot. Yeah, that's right. Yep, absolutely. And, and I'm Dan Koch, and I host You Have Permission podcast. I have a master's in counseling psychology, almost a doctorate. <laughs> it's going to feel like that for two more years, but <laughs> I have completed all my doctoral coursework. And I tend to wow. focus on the overlap of psychology and, and Christianity and, and um, a lot of psychology of religion, but also kind of sociopolitical issues Definitely started out as like more of a straight deconstruction, you know, theology kind of a show. Uh, but I tend to lean more into psychology as that is my interest. And my tagline is 
you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. So quite a bit of overlap uh, between yeah. our kind of missions. Definitely. Okay. And really quick, I, I want to say that it's inter- it's crazy because I found you before I even started TNE. I found you on a podcast. So it's been cool, you know, hanging out with you last year at beer camp and, you know, doing some stuff together. So it's a very full circle moment for me personally, which is very cool. Well, I appreciate that. So Pete Enns, biblical scholar, co-host of The Bible for Normal People and Faith for Normal People, uh, really kind of one of the leading voices of our sort of our little subculture. For sure. Posted a video, I, I think it was in August, about basically people who have experienced what he called a toxic form of Christianity. And mm-hmm. the the video made one kind of main point, which is that those who have only experienced a toxic form of Christianity should be taken seriously in terms of their experience. They should be listened to and learned from because that experience is a part of the Christian experience and we need to pay attention to it. However, when they then move to become spokespeople to talk about Christianity as a whole, they're not the best spokespeople because they've only experienced this particularly toxic form. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was kind of around the time when Shiny Happy People, the Duggar Family series was like the biggest docuseries on Prime Video in their history. And, you know, kind of a lot of talk about Bill Gothard and this kind of super quite toxic sort of homeschooling culture. Yeah. And there was a common reaction and question that a number of people responded to Pete's video. They said, well, maybe all Christianity is toxic. And if mm-hmm. all Christianity is toxic, then the argument does not hold that only those who've experienced a toxic form, you know, or that those who have only experienced a toxic form cannot speak on the whole. Because if that is the whole, then they can speak on the whole. And right. Pete did a response video. I think he tried to be very sort of empathetic and, and, but, but also kind of stuck to his guns. Like there are still just a lot of different versions of Christianity and experiencing one version does not make you an expert on all the other versions. Um, and that's kind of what we want to talk about today. First of all, his, his basic claim about that, like one version, does that apply to everything? And then also this question of, well, is all Christianity toxic? And what would we mean by that? And how would we sort of show that with some kind of evidence, or do we think that that's false? And how would we show that with some kind right. of evidence? Any response right. to how did I do kind of setting up the conversation, Tim? I think you summed it up well uh, overall for sure. Uh, for sure. Yeah, I, I followed that little thing that popped up you know, on his account, some of the comments. And I, I also you know, watched this video a few times, make sure I fully understood it. And I think maybe at the end, there was something that Pete said that someone, people maybe, maybe took some issue with. But yeah, I think the actual idea of what he summed up and what his point was is well said, Dan, honestly. And I, I have a lot of thoughts on this myself because I kind of have a foot in both of these worlds where I'm talking to people like Pete and others who just you know have taught me so much about all this, but I'm also very tuned into the very harmful expression that so many of us are coming from and how right. that can shape how you view Christianity. So I'm definitely excited to kind of dig into it with you as well. I do have a tie-in to Theology Beer Camp here. Okay. And and here's the tie-in. Beer is inherently toxic. It is literally, it contains alcohol, which is a poison that if we take too much of it will kill us instantaneously or like over the course of an evening. And if we don't do that much, which obviously people are not dying every, you know, some people die every day of alcohol poisoning, but I haven't died of alcohol poisoning yet, despite my enjoyment of beer. But we we basically accept some amount of that toxicity and poison for the benefits that we get from drinking the beer, especially, you know, uh, you could think about there's bad versions of that. There's people who will essentially drink themselves to death very slowly and mm. they sort of, they almost don't have much of a choice around it. Yeah. But like someone like myself or my wife or many of my friends, like, we will have a few drinks sometimes in a context where we are with people that we love, we're celebrating something, we might be at a birthday party or a wedding or just a night out with friends, and we're we're willing to take a little bit of toxicity to our system for the larger good of the event and kind of what it brings us. I, I just thought of this analogy literally 15 minutes ago, so I'm not sure how well it's going to hold up, but it's a nice tie-in yeah. to the fact that we're go- both going to be drinking beer together and talking about yes. God and psychology and all that stuff. Uh, in Missouri in October. So what do you think of that 
my my ham fisted tie in. Oh man, I uh, you know it, it's I I definitely see what you're saying. <laughs> You know, the problem with me is that I'm not a huge alcohol person, period. I just started drinking casually when I was like 31. So like four years ago, I've never been drunk and I never really acquired a taste for like really hoppy beers and stuff. I Mm -hmm. like very sweet things. I like dirty Shirley's. I like Shirley Temples with some vodka in it. Okay. I like sour beers. I like things that you really can taste the alcohol in. So, But that's fine, but you're still taking it in. And it's, it's loosening you up and it's it's changing some aspect of how you interact with people and how you experience a conversation or a concert or whatever. It, it, it might. I, I, I've never been inebriated. I okay. have drank more for social. Like, okay. When, when, when You're an trip, odd choice for Theology Beer Camp, Tim. Let's just put it I, that way. Well, I like Trip. I like the people who go, you know, and you know, Trip and I did, we flew out to Missouri to kind of scope out the venue. We did like this taster thing yeah. and we shot a lot of videos because we're obviously so different with our alcohol consumption. Yeah, it was yeah, actually yeah. a lot of fun because I will say, and I, maybe this is a good example, a tie into this. I got to taste a lot of different flavors of beer uh, from all different breweries. And I was like, wow, you know, I'm starting to understand like, like why folks would really enjoy going to a local brewery, trying different flavors, different types, different brew processes and some of them i one in particular i really fell in love with so i i I think maybe that is my tie into this you know is like you don't have to like all the beers but i also don't think i'm i'm a credible beer critic because i don't like the taste of alcohol does that make sense (laughs) and it's worth saying like i even i've emailed with some listeners of my show who are coming to the event that aren't drinking aren't drinkers maybe they're sober or they're just not that interested right and uh you are also welcome. And there are yes. there is a contingent of non-drinkers at Theology Beer Camp. Yeah. So worth saying. And I've been working with Trip. We're doing we're gonna do I think some Mad Priest coffee will be there. I think we're doing uh, some kombucha will be there. Sweet. So definitely other options for for the folks like maybe me and those yeah. listening who are like, hey, maybe I'll have a beer, or maybe I don't want to drink at all. Yeah. There'll be other options for you to partake in. Yeah. Okay. So to get into the question, I I, I just want to make a caveat because I am essentially gonna argue that Christianity is not inherently toxic. That's my yeah. view. Uh, but I want to say clearly that for people who have been abused or otherwise harmed by the church, it very well for those pe- people may either feel or the reality may be for some period of time that the entire thing is toxic and unhelpful yep. for them. Uh, religious trauma is a very real thing. My own research is on spiritual abuse. I've developed a scale for measuring spiritual abuse and the effects. I've worked with clients who have experienced wow. religious trauma. I've had clients with identical PTSD symptoms from these experiences. So in no way am I minimizing those experiences. I I literally work with them on a regular basis uh, and study them, and I take them very seriously. That being said, there are 2 billion Christians. And so (laughs) if if Christianity is inherently toxic, you know, now I think there's really a good conversation to be had about levels of toxicity. And that's kind of where the beer thing and alcohol thing, I think, is kind of a good analogy. But like, I don't think it's true that 2 billion people are walking around the world just like constantly being poisoned by their religious system. And I don't think that careful research bears that claim out either. So that's kind Mm. of, that's where I'm coming from broadly. I don't know if you have anything to add before we kind of pop into this. Well, I think where I'm coming from broadly is I think part of this conversation between Pete and some other folks who maybe, you know, heard him say things. Uh, and took them very differently than, than how Pete meant them, is that when Pete says Christianity, he really means like those 2 billion people, you know, the Eastern Orthodox, the, you know, like, like, like the whole wide smorgasbord of Christian thought that is massive. Oh, that's good. And I think a lot of people, and I'm someone who is, by the way, very much a product of, of evangelicalism. And for a lot of years, I associated evangelicalism in America with Christianity. Like, like they were synonymous terms, right? Yep. So I think I'm coming from this where, I, when I, as I've been thinking about this more and more, I'm like, you know, I think that if if Pete and, and me and these people were in the same room, we'd all agree that maybe this particular stream that a lot of us came out of is inherently toxic. But that doesn't mean that that Christianity as the whole, the 2,000-year-old the tradition that spans time, space, culture, history, context, is all the same thing of what we experience. Does that make sense? I think it's a great point. In fact, I just saw Pete posted like a TikTok stitch video yesterday or two days ago of a guy sort of at some sort of John MacArthur or or John Piper type event saying, why are why is a reformed view considered a minority? And the person answers, because people don't know the Bible. And <laughs> now reformed right. Christianity is not the only type of evangelicalism, right? There's right. there's a lot of overlap there. 
the mm-hmm. standard evangelical sort of Bible or community church in America is basically Baptist light. And so it is reformed yes. light. And it would hold to views like penal substitutionary atonement, which probably we don't need to define for either of our listeners, right? Yep. They know what we're talking about there. Okay. Yep. So what I love about what you said is that evangelicalism in America has always presented itself, well, I don't know about always, since since I have been alive. So at least since yeah. the 80s, maybe not before that when when it kind of was a growing minority, but since the 80s has presented itself as just plain Christianity. It's, it. We got the Bible and the early church, then we skip 1,400 years, we get to the <laughs> Reformation, yeah. we pick some stuff up from those guys, skip another right. 500, and here we are. And it's just right. us with God, the real church, ahistorical, non-historical. We That's don't right. need to know church history. All we need to know is like, we have the text and we're doing what the church in Acts did, essentially, is is kind of how it is viewed. I don't know if that idea is toxic, meaning I don't know, I would want to think more about whether that idea itself harms people. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure that it rises to that level as some other things in a lot of Christianity, like patriarchy, which I think is directly harmful. I don't know that that kind of ahistoricity is directly harmful. It's certainly not true, and it is distorting. And so it, it distorts someone, someone's picture of their own faith and the larger Christian faith of which they are actually a part that does have a history that has many sects and fa- uh, factions and, and you know internal conversation. It's false and it's distorting. Maybe it's toxic. Maybe it's not toxic. I mean, listen, I didn't know that a church calendar existed until I was like 28 years old, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, so it's like, yeah. wait, there's a, a global like church calendar that like most – people who are Christian follow. And I, I never heard of this before. Yeah. I, my question to you would be how, I mean, maybe we should start with defining some terms here. Mm-hmm. How do you define toxic? Because you mentioned that like a historicity distorts and I'm like, well, that's pretty close to toxic for me. Mm. At the same point, I'm with you, Dan, where I'm like, well, I, I don't want to overuse terms and then therefore devalue when those terms need to be used. Right. So I don't want to assign everything as toxic, but I would say kind of starting off for me, the idea of evangelicalism being so ahistorical at a minimal is not beneficial usually for most people, because if you don't know the history, you can't make an informed decision, right? So it's one thing if you're like, hey, I have an understanding, you know, broadly of what's going on. And I've chosen to do this with like how my church expresses, or here's why I'm part of this Pentecostal tradition as opposed to whatever, the mainline church. That's one thing. But when you're just told from day one, like, hey, this is all there is to being a true Christian. And if you if you step one foot out of bounds, you're no longer a true Christian. There's I I can't see in this conversation as we talk a real benefit to that in any kind of capacity. I can only see it being used for control, you know, manipulation and really holding someone in their own prison that they that they're they're not even aware of they're in. Okay, this is a this is a really nuanced and tough one. Mm, okay. So a lot of people believe that their religion, I would guess and I haven't seen numbers on this, but I would guess that most religious human beings believe some version of my group's expression of this is the true faith in God. I I, I think that's probably true of Christians, it's true of Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, whatever. Name it. And religion is really helpful for for most people. It's it's really helpful for the average person, sort of the statistically average person. It's especially helpful, depending on who you ask, only helpful for those who are religious, sort of what's called intrinsic religiosity as opposed to extrinsic. So intrinsic is like, I am personally invested in this. Uh, I connect this to myself and my will and sort of my values. Extrinsic religiosity might be like, well, I go to church to satisfy my father-in-law you know, or to yeah. be a member of this community or something like that because I feel like I have to for my business, right? That's yeah, extrinsic. Right. That's not associated with the same benefits as intrinsic religion. Makes sense. But so if religion is good for the average person and if the average person holds some kind of probably not very carefully thought about exclusivity claims about their religion, tough for me to say that those are necessarily harmful. I think hmm. that they do not reflect maturity 
I would be comfortable saying that. I think that the most mature kind of religious faith has an open hand toward others. I mean, think about the Good Samaritan, right? Like Jesus is poking at our categories and labels and sort of our tribal impulses. And I I believe, I think Jesus is right. (laughs) You know, like I think that Jesus as presented in the gospels, like is onto something there that is true about mature faith. But it's tough. Like to what extent does feeling special, like a special child of God, like the, Mm. like a chosen person, whether that's in like a Jewish sense or like a reformed Calvinist sense. (laughs) Right. I I don't, I mean, it, it, I'm sure it confers some benefits. I don't, that one's a little stickier and trickier for me. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay, let's 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 recenter this back to the claim, right? Is that Pete's claim in the video, like you said, is that if you are someone who has experienced like harm, right, in in your church tradition or Christian tradition, that he says in the video that makes you a credible critic of that toxic, you know, tradition. Yeah. But it doesn't make it doesn't make you an automatic expert on essentially what he says is is, is on Christianity as a whole. Right. I honestly did not I, and I still do not think that's a controversial statement. And I, you know, for our audience, people who listen to us, like I consistently bring on people to show them other ways of being Christian that are not inherently toxic yeah. or harmful, yeah. right? And so I don't know if like our audience, if, if my folks are like, oh, how could Pete say that? I think what's interesting is that this was one of those cases where I think that there were people who, and again, I, I don't know if these people personally, I just read a few of the comments, you know, and I, I thought about it. I had a few people message me about it as well. And it seems like a lot of the take was almost a sense of, hey, the way that Pete talked about this uh, made me feel like how pastors in my life have talked to me about things. And it made me feel discredited, right? Yeah. And I think, again, Pete being a biblical scholar, right? Pete being in, in in the mindset of an academic, thinking about what's the data, how do we process this, how do we help people see nuance? I think all he's saying is, hey, what happened to you is your experience and you're an expert on that in the tradition that that you were a part of. But the Christian tradition is way bigger than than one singular experience or tradition that we're all a part of. And that does not make the whole thing inherently, you know, toxic. And I've experienced this before, by the way, with, with like atheists. All right. So we, we we can we can go somewhere else with this. I I've met a few people online who you know, are pretty militant about their atheism and they just will DM me like your your whole faith is this. You know, every Christian is this. And that's just like you know, okay, but like, are, are how how do you prove that? To your point earlier, yeah. like, like, okay, what's the data on that? What tradition are we talking about? What what point in history? What holy book are they referring to? Which Bible we're we talking about? You know, all those questions come to my mind right away because I, I of course want to examine such claims, but if there's no data behind it and it's just based on what that person's seeing, fair point for what they're seeing, but also there's a lot that we're all not seeing at all times that aren't fair. To, it is not fair to judge. Let's take let's take a non-religious example. So let's say okay. a kid is raised in an extreme environmentalist group. Okay? And like the group has sort of violent plots that it is kind of slowly working on and that involve like killing people who they deem to be responsible for climate change or benefiting the most mm. from like carbon emissions, you know, oil executives or something. And right. but let's go further and say the children are essentially kind of indoctrinated. So they're homeschooled and every morning they are, they are asked to go from ages three to fifth, three to 18. They do a meditation on the destruction of the earth and the fact that they will not live past 30 because, Mm. okay. So imagine someone grows up in that and they come out of that and they go, they go on Fox news and they say, guys, environmentalism is toxic. I know. I was in the beating heart of the environmental movement. And we would say, well, no, uh, you were not in the beating. The, the beating heart of the environmental movement is probably something like the UN climate report. That is the sort of <laughs> right. mainstream center of the environmental movement. And you were in a fringe group. I'm using a pretty extreme example. There are sure. fewer, you know, environmentalism does not tend to get people radicalized the way religion does. And we could talk about right. why that might be. But in that case, we would not think that that person was well-suited to talk about the UN climate report just because they'd been raised in, an, in like an eco-terrorist cult, right? Mm. And, and so I think it's a similar kind of reasoning here that we have to apply. It's 
more difficult with Christianity, though, because when we get to things like patriarchy and the right. m- inherent misogyny in patriarchy uh, or heteronormativity, these mm-hmm. things, oh, now we're getting close to sort of inherent toxicity. And now it's maybe closer to the beer analogy where right. that might still be worth it for people. But ideally, we'd like that to be gone. So when I think yeah. about toxicity, to answer your earlier question, I basically think of it as a- abuse. So mm. something that is truly toxic is abusive. Mm. It's either spiritually abusive, physically abusive, sexually abusive, whatever. And so I, what do you think about that? Am I, am I kind of goosing it a little yes. too much? No, I, I think that I think the analogy. There's definitely a lot of overlap of like, oh yeah, I, I I definitely see that. I think the challenge for maybe someone like myself and other folks out there is that, in in and I, again, no example is perfect, but just 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 to play devil's advocate, you know what we're experiencing right now, and particularly in the American context of this evangelical thing, how common does something have to become before it's not fringe anymore? Right. Yes. And so that's what that's the question. Like, I I think most people listening to this would agree. Okay, if we're talking about the entire Christian tradition, right? Maybe it's not fair to say it's all toxic. But if we're talking about like the 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 waters that a lot of us either come from or the society that we're most of us are probably a part of, like how many examples of those environmentalist types who want to commit violence and acts in the name of their belief system do we need before we can say? You know, in America, this is not actually that fringe. It's actually pretty freaking toxic um, up and down the aisle regarding yeah. the Protestant evangelical connection. Maybe not mainline, but yeah, you know, in, in that way. That's what I think about. Well, it and and it's tough, and it's all discernment here and which metric yeah. you're talking about. But like, for instance, the IBLP, the Institute for Basic Life Principles, Bill Gothard's organization, says that 2.5 million people have gone through the seminar. Now, that is right. certainly going to be the most generous counting of that number that's what organizations do let's (laughs) discount that to a million and a half people who like took it seriously or something like that right that's over a 30-year period or something like that let's maybe say two million i mean max a million or two homeschool children sort of pretty fully ensconced in that world that that feels like kind of a good number and how yeah. many children have been educated in the United States in the last 30 years through public school? Mm. I don't know the number, but let's say 380 million population of the U.S. In the last 30 years, that's going to be about half of the population. So that's 1 million out of maybe 150 million individuals mm-hmm. who have gone through public education. So that is uh, 0.7%. So that's kind of fringe, right? Like mathematically. Mm. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not 0.07%, but it, it's still less than 1% of American individuals who've experienced that. Now, what's been so helpful about larger kind of evangelical populations, people like me or you who were raised in that world, but not in the IBLP world, is that we can draw connections between yes. some of those teachings, which are sort of yeah. in their purest form with Gothard, but we got some versions of some of them. And then that helps us understand our experience. But almost all of us got a more watered down version of it, which means Mm. that if those things are toxic, it was like a lower ABV, like it's a Mm. lower toxicity level. And I don't know, I just want to be kind of careful about that and, and not paint with too broad a brush. Okay, let's 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 continue this discussion actually. And by the way, I looked it up. There were 50 million students in 2021 in public schools in elementary and secondary schools yeah. according to Google. So, so. Add, add add at least another full generation if kids are in school for about 12 years and it's yeah. been 30 years of IBLP, actually almost triple triple that. So yeah, about 150 yeah. is about yeah. right. Yeah. One of the things though that I think we need to consider is that Right. And, and and again, we're going to focus in on like how I'm assuming a lot of us listening, at least on my side of this conversation, grew up in like this evangelical thing that we're trying to yeah. decipher. It's not just the IBLP being watered down, right? You're getting John MacArthur stuff. It's getting reinforced by Matt Chandler stuff. Sure. Francis Chan is mm-hmm. reinforcing it. The rallies you're going to are reinforcing it. So like you're right. In and of themselves, those things are pretty watered down. But when 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 you're when you combine, I think all the different things that like the average evangelical kid goes through, it, it becomes pretty concentrated pretty quickly in terms of you know patriarchy, misogyny, heteronormativity, uh, just fundamentalism mm-hmm. broadly speaking. Of you have this objective reality about 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 God that no one else has, yeah. etc. 
And so I think that's that's what makes this conversation really the the work of trying to unpack our own upbringing so complicated is that it isn't just, you know, evangelicalism is not centralized. This is a huge debate in scholarship, right? You ask any legitimate scholar who's done the work and you say, what's an evangelical or who? And they'll go, well, it depends. <laughs> I mean, you know, Isaac Sharp's book on this, other evangelicals, he talks about this. But the point is that the, there's no pope in evangelicalism. It's not a centralized movement. You're talking about a bunch of networks that are all cross-pollinating and they don't always agree, right? Speaking in tongues from our charismatic side of this conversation. Yeah. Meanwhile, the reformed John MacArthur's are like, no, that's not biblical. Yeah. So there's there's dissent, but there's also commonality. And I think, at least from my experience and from listening to folks in our in our spaces and you know, having the privilege of interviewing such amazing people who have done the work in, in that realm, it is clear to me that like when you factor in all the different ingredients. The, the it's a high alcohol volume. Does that make sense? Like <laughs> yeah, it it's, a, it's a very it's a bear. It can be a barrel aged stout. Yeah, you can yeah, really okay, get sure, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'm thinking about. So here, here's how I would explain the mixture of benefit and toxicity. So okay. when I talk about spiritual abuse, like I sometimes will give talks about it and kind of present the my research and. And the topic as a whole, I like this analogy that religion is like nuclear fission. Mm. So nuclear fission, eventually we figured it out. And once we figured it out, let, let's leave the um, atomic bomb to the side and, and just talk about nuclear power plants. So nuclear power plants, when they are run safely and cleanly uh, and, and with, all, with all the appropriate safeguards and stuff, they produce the cleanest and cheapest energy that we know how to make. Hmm. when things go wrong and those nuclear reactors melt down, they irradiate everything in a 20-mile radius and just destroy hmm. the landscape around them. And that's because the, the process, which is either harnessed well or harnessed poorly, is just inherently very powerful. Yeah, and totally. And religion deals with people's ultimate concerns. That's Paul Tillich's language the mid-century theologian, God is basically the object of our ultimate concern, he said. Hmm. Religion deals with our deepest values. So what we think matters, it deals with our relationship to our children and our families, totally. right? And, and it deals with ultimately like the question of whether our lives have purpose or meaning. So religion sort of by its very nature is mucking around with the strongest levers inside us. That's just what it yeah. does. And if it stops mucking with those levers, it's not religion anymore. Like right. it's just something else. Like for instance, if you go to like a bleeding left edge sort of liberal mainline church these days, you might find a church that actually is doing very little religion and just doing political activism. And some people, that is what they want. They want political activism with God language. But I would just say it's it's using different gears at that point. And it's just for some people that that is actually what they want. They they want to be a part of a, a political movement, not a religious movement. And that might be mm. a really good fit for them. But those people are, you know, probably less likely to be harmed in a situation like that where there's a bit more distance between mm. kind of the center of themselves. Obviously, if those are their deepest values, then that's going to end up being very similar to religion. So right. that that's kind of the – that's how I would explain it. So yeah, there is toxicity. And so when there is alcohol in the brew, it's going straight into the bloodstream and it really right. can cause harm. But all the beneficial things about religion are also going straight into the bloodstream. So right. it's like an IV as opposed to drinking something, you know, in liquid form. I was just talking to someone earlier today before we started recording, and I they were asking something similar about like, you know, the benefits and harm of, of, of religion. I said, well, look at the civil rights movement. It's a great example, example. of how the same uh, faith tradition can be used as a weapon to maintain oppression or a tool for liberation, right? Because mm -hmm. you have Martin Luther King, who's a Baptist minister. I mean, his sermons are incredibly steeped in his own religious identity yeah. and his his knowledge, understanding of the scriptures. And then you have people like Bob Jones, right? Bob Jones Sr., who starts Bob Jones University and and says, hey, it's our God-given mandate to keep the races separate, right. right? And so I think that that's a really good stark example of how 
it's for me, I, and again, I'm going to be clear to my audience. You know, I'm not telling you that you have to see everything my way. There's totally room for conversation. Where I'm at in this conversation is that I'm realizing that it's more about, to your point, Dan, like how is this stuff being used and, and, and what does that mean to be faithful to the way of Jesus? Like if I'm going to claim to have allegiance to the way of Jesus, what do I believe about that? And then where do I get that from? And then how do I live that to the best of my understanding and knowledge, right? And so those things go into what make me do a lot of the work I do today that you know um, has promoted my own, but also the human flourishing of other people. That being said, we all, most of us anyway, know what it's like to live on that underside, the other side of that conversation when that same, at least structure, loosely speaking, is weaponized and used in a way that maintains people's power and control over others, that keeps uh, you know, certain people groups at the, at the fringes of access to God um, from how they understand it to be, and that can cause a lot of harm. So I, I like your analogy a lot. I, I like the way you're framing this because we're talking about something very powerful, right? And very, very powerful in a good way. I mean, you know, I think I've gone through my own journey where I go from like, oh, Christians are always on the right side of things, you know, going from like early evangelicalism. <laughs> then you kind of realize, then you oh, kind of realize damn. like how much of a fool's errand that is, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, you start yeah. reading, and you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And then I have found Oops. myself going, man, the whole thing is just, you know, Christians have done all this harm throughout history. Mm-hmm. True, but also many Christians have given us a lot of good things, like yeah. the sciences, uh, even public education, Hospitals. healthcare to yeah. a degree. Hosp- exactly. Yeah. You know, so so I tell people often, I don't want to become a fundamentalist all over again, right? right? I don't want to go from one binary to another. And keeping things in tension and realizing that life and this conversation is way more complicated than all good or all bad keeps me, I think, intellectually honest about the work that we're all trying to do as we navigate better paths forward. Lots of really cool stuff recently released and coming up on the Patreon feed to join. Head to patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes. And patrons get access to what is now most months, three exclusive episodes per month. Sometimes that's like a half episode or a full version of an episode where the first part is on the main feed, but we've upped it from two a month uh, to be more content for patrons each month. You also have access to the patron-only Facebook group. And some of the recent episodes and upcoming ones are awesome. We've got Brandon Flannery discussing his uh, personal research into why people are leaving Christianity. We've got a most, uh, the most recent Generation Gap Culture Hour with Tony Jones and Josh Gilbert and myself. Uh, was a lot of fun. We've got some stuff coming up about the psychology of Christian nationalism and maybe some uh, additional media response. Uh, there's some movies and uh, TV shows that I think are going to be getting some episodes here. I don't want to say too much yet in case plans change, but fun stuff coming up um, on the Patreon. So please consider joining patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Do you end up talking much on your show about the peer-reviewed research around the benefits of of religion and spirituality? No. Let's talk about it a little bit then. I kind of teased it at the beginning. Let's do that. Okay. So first of all- I I love data. Give me the data. I want to do- Okay. There's sort of two questions here. The first is like, is, is all Christian expression abusive? Yeah. As a spiritual abuse researcher, I think I'm in a decent position to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And it is not all spiritually abusive. That's the short version. Some expressions of Christianity are obviously always abusive. For instance, being sexually abused by a clergy member. No question. Yeah. After that, it it becomes sort of a percentages game. So if let's say you like, let's just take a, a fringe ex- or like a, a more kind of tough example. Uh, a young woman grows up in an evangelical church. She is eventually told as, as it becomes clear that she has a passion for preaching and speaking, she's kicked out. She is edged out of that church because women are not allowed to do that. That's true of most denominations, uh, most Protestant denominations, and obviously has its own kind of version in, in Catholicism and Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's shitty, and that will be painful. Let's say that that same woman goes, oh, I've, I've heard about these other denominations, and she goes to Princeton Seminary. And she becomes a badass preacher and author. Well, was that whole thing abusive or toxic or traumatic? I mean, 
there was some toxicity in there. There may have been some spiritual abuse in there. But in the final analysis, if that ends up being a part of her journey towards figuring out and being able to better explicate a more loving, inclusive, and Jesus-focused version of Christianity, then are we going to call, you know, can we really call the whole thing a bad experience? If we took certain slices, it was. It was painful. There was suffering involved. But what did that suffering produce? It might have produced something good. Now, that's not to say that we should. I'm not going to make a uh, the, the kind of argument that some apologists will make about, you know, well, it's a soul-making enterprise, and so God's causing all this suffering to make us grow. I'm not saying that, but I'm just right. saying that that's a, that's a more of a complicated situation where we would say that that was a toxic belief. That's a toxic widespread belief that women are not equal to men, which is essentially yeah. what it boils down to. That's right. These stories and examples really stretch my brain because I, I feel very torn. On one hand, you know, there are times where I'm like, listen, some of these institutions just don't need to exist anymore. I mean, like, like, like the SBC, I think is a good example. You, know, you cover decades of abuse. Okay. And then every now and then, right, you meet someone who's like, hey, man, just so you know, like I grew up in the SBC and like they gave me this foundation of my love for Jesus. And now I'm doing this like, you know, this work with like other people and like making a dent in the world. And I'm like, oh, okay. So there's this individual who through the SBC actually – had a, had some kind of like foundation that led to like their human flourishing where they were able to take the words of their pastor seriously when they said, don't take my words seriously and did the research for themselves and yeah. they're doing this work. Right. Right. And so then I think, okay. And then I, I also, I, I tend to be someone who gets very pragmatic. I'm a very pragmatic person. And I think to myself, what is more possible in my lifetime for me to do? dismantle the SBC so it no longer exists as an institution or help build better paths forward in our faith that just kind of leave those places behind. Interesting. And I think it's also important that I say this. We do advocate for accountability in these spaces. So part of the work that we do is calling this stuff out and doing videos on it. Yeah. But I think what, what has captured my attention more is like, okay, we all – no, we agree. These places are like they're not for us. We we know that at a minimum. Yeah. And in 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 their worst cases, they're they're actually harming a lot of people and covering it up for their own power. Yeah. Okay. So that being said, instead of me trying to like you know sledgehammer away and break a sweat just to destroy something, I'll let that thing just fade into obscurity. And why don't we just start thinking about better paths forward for us? And what else is out there that's already kind of established and partner with them to do better work? Right. So that's where I'm kind of like now because. For me, I'm just speaking like from my own personal like perspective here. I know that when we make content that calls for accountability, people often feel seen. They tell us like, oh, that video you did calling this thing out, I Absolutely. felt so seen in that. Yeah. And that's important, right? And I don't want to ever lose that. Like we have an obligation to our community to to use our platform to draw attention to things that are causing serious harm. Long term, in 10 years though, five years, whatever, it would be good to also be in a place where we're all kind of like, oh, here's some new practices for us that maybe are actually ancient, but are new for us, right? Or maybe right. here's a better way of thinking about this conversation, or here's a better way of organizing, you know, how how we gather to, you know, love each other and, and love God, like in a church setting. That's like where I want to head long term while still maintaining that platform of, hey, yeah, they're hiding this, they're, they're covering this up. This is problematic. We need to call for accountability. So really both and more than either or. I, I think that's great. I, I, teased more evidence than I've presented. Let me let me talk a little bit about yes. the evidence Go here. Ahead. So <clears throat> this is, as I understand it, essentially a consensus of careful peer-reviewed evidence around religiosity and spirituality. It is across cultures, across languages and countries, okay? Wow. So both religiosity, that is the amount that someone engages in religious practice over time, like weekly or, or whatever, that's, that's usually how religiosity is is framed and spirituality, which is generally uh, defined as how strong someone's sense is that there is a loving and guiding higher power. Okay, so we've got religious practice, how often, and how strong of a sense that they're guided by a loving higher power. Got it. Both religiosity and spirituality are consistently associated with almost every psychological benefit you can imagine, as well as other bodily benefits. Religiosity is associated with overall quality of life and inherent protection against disease. Positive religious coping and meaning making, that's where we sort of make meaning out of a tough situation using religious language. 
that can contribute to a decrease in depressive symptoms, an increase in self-esteem, and higher life satisfaction. Religiosity and spirituality have both been shown to be good in healing from trauma. That's actually a, a big point when I'm talking about spiritual abuse huh. is that it can kind of actually block off a major pathway that people have for healing from the, from the specific abuse that is being visited upon them. Wow. Religious and spiritual coping allows believers to look for spiritual support from God or other divine beings, social support from co-religionists, and to make meaning out of negative events which can promote resilience and well-being. By the way, these are all quotes from, uh, from papers and stuff. Both religiosity and spirituality are associated in children and adolescents with better social support, better role identity, positive religious coping, and sanctions against risky behaviors like early drug use, really early sexual activity. More religious adolescents report lower rates of misbehavior at school and higher levels of hope, love, purpose, self-esteem, and motivation. That's kind of a quick overview of the benefits. There are also problems with in religion, mainly around prejudicial attitudes and in-group, out-group thinking. I guess my kind of overall argument from the wow. evidence is it's hard to say something that is associated with so many clear goods can be yeah. inherently toxic. I, yes. I think I, I kind of like thinking of it like beer. Like what's the alcohol level uh, in your religion? It can be higher and it can be lower, but for the average person and the average brew, the yeah. benefits are going to outweigh the costs. Now, there is one category of people for whom that is going to be different, especially in our day and age, and that's like queer people in mm. non-affirming spaces. Yes. That yes. is, in that situation, and that's a higher and higher percentage for younger and younger generations, right? So some of that is probably not captured in, in the older research on the topic. Right. And that's kind of my one big asterisk is like, if that's you, then probably there's going to be a lot of sort of barometric pressure on you that you're not really going to be able to be yourself in these spaces. And I, I can imagine, I'm sure there is research around this stuff that's kind of more fresh, that a lot of these benefits are not going to accrue to your account because you're not able to actually express your faith authentically if you're constantly hiding who you are or you know, having to argue for your place in the system and all of that stuff. So that that's an important caveat. And then the earlier caveat about intrinsic versus extrinsic religion matters here as well. But if it's intrinsic, if you really believe it, if you're really practicing it, I mean, that's what the research says. And I'm, I'm imagining that that these are not evangelical researchers like the Barna Group or something being paid to to spin, you know, why their theology is yeah. is beneficial. This is like actual academics, people who really have no dog in the fight, just trying to get the data. Is that correct? Well, I'm sure it's a mix, but it's okay. also not just Christians. Uh, these, right. these are other right. religions across the globe, Beyond different that, yeah. cultures. I think that the nuclear fission sort of model uh, or analogy sort of explains that pretty well. That like people all over the world who are engaging in these things, they are activating social support. They're activating basically their connection to a community, their oh, sense yeah, of purpose. Huge you know, purpose, meaning, forward drive, their goals. Uh, they are, they are co-raising children, right? And, and like, just, just the fact that it's good for kids and adolescents, like that would be enough right there for me, <laughs> you know, like 100%. that's enough. I got a three and a half year old and Same. I'm terrified about, what, you know, about what could maybe happen yes. to him. And right now, one thing that's interesting is when you talk about this stuff with evangelicals, even evangelical researchers will tell their fellow evangelicals, guys, to be clear, this research is not showing that evangelical Christianity performs better than mm. other religions mm. or other forms of Christianity. And that's right. what a lot of evangelicals would like to see. We don't right. see that in the data in any large scale. We actually just see it across faiths. Let me ask you a question. By the way, I have a three and a half year old and a one year old, and I, I'm with you on that. I'm like, oh boy, you know, how do we navigate yeah. that? And, but let me ask you this. I'm, I'm going to throw a thought your way and have you, you know, just give me your honest uh, feedback on it. Do you think one of the reasons why spiritual abuse is so absolutely damaging to people is because it inverts what could be a very healing and human flourishing way of living for those yes. people? When I was describing it to a friend, he said, it's like being injured at the hospital. Yeah. Right. It's like you go to the hospital <laughs> right. to get, you right. know, 
an appendix surgery and they break your leg while you're there. Yeah. And now you have like a fear of hospitals and you are less likely to go back to the hospital. In fact, when, when we are training as therapists, one of the things that they really emphasize is making sure that new clients for whom you might not be a good fit don't have such a bad experience with you that they mm. don't go back to therapy. Wow. Because you don't want their future, uh, you don't want them to not take advantage of a tool that's available to them because of one bad experience. You don't want to be the college tequila night of therapy, <laughs> right? Okay. Definitely you, not. We all know people who never <laughs> drank tequila after one really bad night, right? Right. Like you right. don't want to do that. And, and that's because that's a powerful tool that they could maybe use later, right? And so that is, to me, the most pernicious thing about spiritual abuse is that it is potentially closing off someone's ability to practice their faith. And their ability to practice their faith, we know empirically, is a legitimate, if not the best option for them to heal from trauma, from abuse. So you're, you're, you're f***ing with their ability to heal. As right. you hurt them, right, and and that's to me the the worst thing about spiritual abuse. No, that makes a ton of sense. I can't tell you how many people that we engage with consistently. Like they tell me all the time, I just miss community. Like I even even when yeah. I was at my church, I didn't agree with everything that they were saying. I missed the sense of belonging. You know, I think that is perhaps I think that and and spiritual abuse are probably the the, the two biggest obstacles I think for people at least in my spaces that I, I agree uh, that I engage with but and also I don't have, always have a good answer for you know I mean Dan I think you and I agree here like digital spaces can be helpful and people feel heard and seen and that's so good right and we, we, we do we make a living doing this stuff because there's such a need for it because we love doing it but we both know that like proximity to real humans embodied humans can't be replicated in a Facebook group or on an Instagram message. Yeah. And so I feel the limitations of, of even what we do daily because I'm like, wow, I, I wish I could just say, oh, I know this church is doing great work. Just go here. Or, hey, here's a community thing. You should just get more involved there. But for us, a lot of people that we engage with are like, I just don't know what to do. I feel lonely. I've been you know, really harmed by my own tradition. I can't trust Christianity right now. And I have no one to even process this with. And they end up finding places like, you know, your podcast or my podcast. And here we are having that conversation. It's just very difficult to navigate sometimes. I think of listeners the same as I think of therapy clients in this regard. Mm. Ultimately, what I want for everyone is to have a group of four to 10 people that right. they can, you know, or more. I mean, larger groups, you know, maybe better, maybe, maybe equal depending on, you know, some factors, but like a, a real community of people who have shared values and enjoy each other's company. Yeah. Now there are also benefits of like a church type community that you don't get with more chosen family, chosen community, which is you get people who you wouldn't normally hang out with. And that's another benefit. Yes. But my perspective as a therapist, I would not put that as like the main benefit. I think the main benefit is closer to like a, a healthy family or local community of people that you really enjoy being with and feel really supported by. Like if I'm working with a client on like a treatment plan over, you know, let's say I'm, I'm helping them map out the next few years of their life or something. Yeah. I'm not going to put, make sure you're hanging out with people that rub you the wrong way that force you to grow at the top of the treatment plan. Yes. You know, that will come later. That right. is a real source of growth and, and sort of uh, yeah. like being able to navigate that and learn to, learn to love people unlike us. But yes. I'd put that sort of higher up on the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Uh, you know, Maslow's hierarchy is like, you know, food and shelter at the bottom and self-actualization at the top and other right. stuff in between. So, right. But it, it, it's on there, but really it's more that kind of just a, a loving community of people, supportive. And the thing about religious communities is they bring in that purpose and those deep values. They're, they're, yes. they're mucking with the levers at the core of you. And if right. you can do that well, if you can do that safely, yeah, that's rocket fuel for human right. flourishing. Right. But if not, <laughs> we're in the upside right. down. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, and here we are, right? I mean, we, we all know about, about the explosion online of people going like, uh, you know, I, I was all in guys and I like, got really hurt by all this. Yeah. It is interesting because I agree with you a ton about what you said with people meeting folks that maybe they wouldn't normally meet and kind of like forming some kind of like community with as part of like the group, you know, 
And I think that one of the things I've, I've told people on online, again, in the spaces that we occupy is that, Hey, I know a lot of you might think you want community, but like, I really thought of that through a little bit, you know, because community can get a little messy. It can get a little touchy feely. Someone's going to annoy you. Someone's not going to agree with you on something. And how do you navigate that? And I think one of my concerns sometimes about um, this space that I think a lot of us are all trying to navigate is I think, and I, I want to say I'm guilty of this, but we've like almost romanticized or, or, or made it altruistic. Like this idea of like what you said earlier, is there's some like, you know, utopian finality that we can find in this life where everyone gets along great, meaning everyone's made in my own image. That, that, that they're acting how I want them to act, you know? And, and, yeah. and, and because we've, we've experienced such a toxic version of this Christian thing, any sense of conflict, any sense of, you know, Oh, this person said this the wrong way puts us back in that headspace of like, Oh my God, it's just as bad as it was last time. Right. As opposed to like, Oh, there's good friction. And then there's unhealthy friction. And how do I discern between good friction or unhealthy friction? Does that make sense? It's a great insight. I don't think I can do it justice in the time we have. I'll I'll try and summarize really quickly. So I do cognitive behavioral therapy with my clients. Mm-hmm. This is a very evidence-based, probably the most common form of therapy in, in the West right now. CBT, right? Is that what it's CBT, called? CBT, yes. And one of the facets of CBT that, if not, if not the kind of main insight that is most helpful to people, is to identify what we call cognitive distortions or mm. thinking errors in more, in more popular terms. And the, there are basically types that everybody does sometimes. So all or nothing, black and white thinking, that's kind of the, that's the king of cognitive distortions. That's the one that people most understand and can identify and that basically everybody does it. Sometimes we all, we, we especially all do it when we are distressed. That, that's when we go into these things. So actually being kind of triggered or being, um, reminded of, of, of painful experiences. Uh, that is a time when we are actually more likely to be thinking less clearly. This is mm. kind of another angle of Pete's initial point. And you want to be careful here because you don't want to victim blame. Exactly. Um, and exactly. that's why, and that's why the emphasis on including that experience as a part of our overall analysis, but for an individual person or for someone who's a third party, who's trying to figure out the truth about things, it actually can, you know, it's helpful to figure out approximately when people are acting on these distorted thoughts, mm. you know, so all or nothing thinking is something like, if I got a 98, I failed, right? So, right. Cause only a hundred percent is a success. Yeah. Uh, second place is the first, if you're not first, <laughs> yeah. you're last. Is that yeah, from yeah. Talladega Nights? Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. Okay. You know, like if you're not first, you're last is all or nothing thinking. That's a, a kind of a silly example of it. Or like, for instance, mental filter, you're, you're paying attention to one part of something, but not the larger picture. Now, usually when we're t- doing CBT with people, it's about their individual life and their experiences. So you might say, ah, I got like, I got a performance review from my job and my boss said six really nice things about me, including that I hit all my numbers, but he mentioned this one thing that I could improve upon. And if I'm engaging in mental filter, I am zeroed in on that one thing mm. and I'm ignoring the other six things he said, including the most important thing to the company, which is I hit my numbers. My right. salary has been justified, right? Right, right. So that's another example. So these things can creep in and they especially creep in when we're distressed, when we are feeling emotionally distressed or you know overwhelmed, flooded, something like that. Again, y- y- you don't want a victim blame here yes. because- Abuse by a clergy member, a religious institution, a person in your congregation is not your fault. Right. It might also be true that when you are triggered by that, you are not thinking as clearly. Let's use a a combat veteran as an example here briefly. I know we're kind of running out of time. Oh, you're good. Go ahead. A vet, you know, a a soldier goes to war. Let's say it's, let's say it's Vietnam. It's an unjust war. They are sent to Vietnam. It is not their fault that they went Mm -hmm. to Vietnam, and it is not their fault that they saw their sergeant execute a civilian unjustly. But they are traumatized by it, and they come back. And when they see a movie or hear a certain kind of a sound or whatever, they start start freaking out. They go into, you know, fight or flight or whatever. And in that moment, let's say it's your uncle. And in that moment, when your uncle is reminded of this stuff, 
he starts spouting a bunch of nonsense to you. Yeah. Okay. We're not blaming the uncle right. for his experience. It's not his fault. Right. We'd like him to get treatment and then he would be in a better place. Yes. But would we trust what he's saying in that moment? No. Right. right. We don't trust it. Right. We, it's not a good source of information. And so yeah. those are two things that we don't, we're not always very good at holding those at the same time. This person was harmed. It's not their fault. On the other hand, they might not be a good source of information. That's ultimately right. what Pete was saying. Right. And you got to be careful there. Totally. But nuance like that, holding both and instead of an either or, that does not play well in thought leader space, in podcasting space, right. on Twitter. Uh, you know, in, in our kind of day, like that stuff is not rewarded. Uh, black and white thinking, tribal thinking, we're all great. They fucking suck. That yeah. is how you get followers today. Yeah. And so you're always yeah. going to get pushback if you try and be nuanced in that respect. I think your combat veteran analogy really grounds it for people. It grounds it for me. And also, I mean, listen, I, I had my own mental health crisis a few years ago that put me on a, a, a long, twisty path for a couple of years. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I can tell you that there were things I was thinking that were distorted, right? And it wasn't my fault that this stuff happened to me. My, my brain just kind of went kablooey for a few years, frankly. But I... Yeah. I did my best to get help so I could start thinking more clearly, right? And so I don't see myself as victim blaming myself for that. Like I know it was out of my control, but I also knew that some of my thoughts were not trustworthy looking back on that experience, right? And so I, I think that is a very reasonable position to have because the whole point uh, of, of therapy and in other ways of finding healing is to help people, right, be grounded back to themselves to be able to think clearly to promote their own, again, human flourishing and also the flourishing of others. That's the whole point, right? So I, I think it makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. And we would never think that holding a combat veteran who's who's activated and having a moment saying things, we would never think if we said, hey, let's, let's help you kind of think through this a little bit more because you know now that we're kind of past it, what you said maybe wasn't accurate. I would yeah. not call that victim blaming. It's helping them realize what happened and helping them move towards a posture of, you know, awareness and healing to help them be more grounded inside of their own bodies, which is the whole point of what, of what those people are trying to do. Yeah. Well said, man. Thank you, Dan. This was fun. Yeah. I now, love here's the stuff. question. Here, yeah. Here's the big question. How do we do these promo code things for beer camp? You got a promo code. <laughs> I got a promo code. Oh, shoot. Do I have to love my enemy here and say, no, we'll give you your, I mean, how does this no. work? Dan? Okay. I think here's, I mean, <laughs> listeners are welcome to use either promo code, I agree. Uh, which, will, which will be in the show notes, by the way. Those will be listed in there. But I would say if you came primarily as a new evangelical listener, you should use Tim's promo code. If you came as you have permission, maybe use mine. I agree. You know? And then if you also really like the other person and want to start engaging with our content, then great. And you know, we both have like a, Patreons and stuff like that if people want to support either of us. But you know, I don't want to, I'm not trying to snag your promo code audience. <laughs> By the way, I think we might be kind of neck and neck. I can ask Kristen. I think we are. We are pretty close. So, uh, well, what, what, just, just in case people don't look in the show notes, if you go to theologybeer.camp, you can buy a ticket. If you use either one of our promo codes, and I agree with Dan, if you're more in Dan's camp, use this promo code. If you're in mine, use mine. My promo code is TNE GodPod, and you'll get, I think it was a 25 bucks or 20 bucks off your ticket. Is that I think how it it's works? 25 bucks, yeah. Okay. And what's your promo code, Dan? I think it's YHP GodPod. You have permission. Okay. Yeah. yeah. YHP GodPod. So you can use you can use either one of those. Beer camp is gonna be a great time. You'll get to meet some people who are part of the same community that you're a part of. You get to hang out with cool people. It's gonna be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's kind of like what we were talking about, the problem with digital communities versus in person. I think that this is almost like a it's like a middle space in that sense. It's not it's not necessarily people who are gonna live near you that you can have dinner with right. every other week. But it is in person, and I, I do think it, like, I would recommend it to somebody, from a therapeutic perspective, I would recommend it to somebody who's, like, really craving some in-person interaction with people who are at a similar place on these tough questions. Um, yeah. It's not going to, it's not the ultimate goal of that right. kind of regular community, but it's, but it is better and different than purely digital. I will tell you, Dan, no bullshit. Going last year was incredibly healing for me. I didn't even know I needed it. But when I oh, went, wow. I was like, oh my goodness. Like I'm with people that are kind of thinking through some of the same stuff. I'm, I'm listening to people who have thought through this stuff, who are incredibly wise. 
And then we're all just like hanging out. You know, they're, they're, sometimes people, especially, you know, former evangelicals think of events. They think, okay, uh, so-and-so is in their green room and maybe I'll be able to see him once. That's not, that's, that's not how this event works. Okay. Everyone's no, just intermingled. No. You know, you're going to hang out. Yeah. You're going to see Derek Webb walking around. You'll see Pete Enns walking around. Adam Clark will be there. There's, there's not like this, this platform and then like everyone else. It's just, we're all together hanging out. And for me, it was like just very, it was very good. I really enjoyed it. I met some great people that I still talk to. I met some people from our own community. Noah, Same. our podcast producer, came with yeah. me. And it just felt good, which is why I told Trip, yes, I, I will definitely come back this year. So it's going to be a great time, Dan. I'm looking forward to it for sure. Absolutely. You know, ultimately, it would be great if there was sort of like a, I don't know, if like maybe each half of the country had like four things a year <laughs> that like if yeah. it eventually got to that where like depending on people's kind of work schedules and availability and where they live like if people could get to two of these kind of things a year like that would i mean honestly that would fill a pretty big role for people uh it's not it's not weekly or every other week but it's but it's something i wonder if we can wonder if we could work towards something like that almost like a coordinated live event thing with a bunch of different online communities what I hear you saying is you want to build some better paths forward. And I'm all, I'm all for it. I'm in. Is that your tagline? I say it all the time. Yep, <laughs> my tagline, yeah. Uh, Dan, yeah. where can my folks find you? I know you, you have a podcast. You have permission. Are you on yeah. social media? Are you on Instagram, TikTok? Like, what's the deal? I am. Yeah, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook under my name, Dan Coke. And then Instagram, I think is Dan C-O-K-E. I'm just going to okay. double check that right now. Because I am a, sort of a Luddite sometimes. D A N. Let's double check this. All right. C O K E. C O K E. Awesome. There it is. And I'm on Twitter too. D A N K O C H, which is my actual spelling. It doesn't matter. Love it. We'll put links. We'll put links. Friends, thanks for hanging yeah. out. Thanks for listening to our conversation. Of course, I would love your feedback. Feel free to send it my way in my DMs. Love to know what you think about the conversation with Dan. I thought it was really good, really nuanced, and really helpful to think through these things deeply, which is part of the work that we're all trying to do. So thanks again, Dan. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, man.